0: Welcome to Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness.
1: Hi, Hara. It's absolutely wonderful to be with you here today. I'm Jan Stewart. I'm in Toronto, in Canada. I am a neurodiversity advocate and governance expert. I am an author, a parent of two now grown children with multiple mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders. And I'm a very proud of everything that's going on in the whole mental health and neurodiversity arena today.
0: I read that you and your husband had children who had mental health issues, is that correct?
1: Yes, I would say, you know, both my husband, David and I, Grew up in wonderful families, loving families, no adversity, really no major issues when you look back on it. And so we naively, after we got married, you know, I remember our biggest debates when I got pregnant with Andrew, our first was to say, you know, which private school should we send them to because we're in a major city and Mm -hmm. should we use a soother or let him suck his thumb? You know, those kind of decisions seemed all consuming. And of course, you look back at them now and they're totally ludicrous. But almost from the beginning, we sensed that something wasn't right. So Andrew's hands and feet moved constantly in circular motion. All our friends' babies would sit and gurgle in their cribs and talk to themselves and play. And you could hear on the intercom, right? The wonderful, wonderful sounds. Andrew never did that. The minute he woke up, he demanded to be picked up and fed immediately. Mm -hmm. And when it came to his bottles, he had no self-control. We actually did an experiment that I talk about when he was six months old. We said, let's give him as many bottles as he wants and let's see what happens. Because our doctor and our family and our friends all said, baby, you'll stop when they're full. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. Well, after he downed five straight bottles, I kid you not, Five straight and like, boom, 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 without stopping. And by the way, he didn't get sick.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We stopped him. We were terrified. Mm -hmm. We were perplexed. And the next day we said, let's do just the opposite. And we gave him just one bottle and he was just as happy. Mm. So it was quite a surprise to us. And we even saw that, therefore, as a baby at that age, that they were Now we know they're neurodevelopmental markers. But of course, at the time, we're first-time parents. We didn't know what was going on. And every time I approached the doctor with a concern, he would turn to me and say, Jen, calm down. The kids are just under a bit of stress. And of course, this continued for years. Uh, don't worry about it. They're going to be fine. You need to stop being overly vigilant and triple type A. Essentially, I was the problem. Oh my gosh. I should have trusted my gut. That's your healthcare professional, your doctor whom you trust. And you have no other frame of reference as a first-time parent. Right. All your family, all your friends are telling you, your kids are great. Don't worry about it. But you know in your gut, something's not right how did you figure out what wasn't right? Well, it's been quite a journey. And by the way, continues to, even though they're grown now. So through the next number of years, there were increasing signs, or I should say continuing signs that they were increasing. There was impulsivity, distractibility. There were vocal and motor tics. There was a lot of anxiety. Neither child, when they started school, could hold a pencil or crayon correctly. But They both learned to read and write. They both had friends. They both talked, you know, and they were social. And so our doctor again said, same old thing. He kept hearing the mantra repeated, calm down, calm down. They're just sensitive. This will pass. But what happened when Andrew reached nine, shortly after his birthday, we were holidaying in the Laurentian Mountains north of Montreal at Andrew's grandmother's summer place. And the first three, four days were great. You know, we were picking blueberries in the bushes and walking through the woods and playing tennis and swimming and doing all the stuff you do at a cottage. But in the middle of the morning of the fourth morning, he erupted suddenly, and I mean erupted into a two hour screaming meltdown. We used to call it a rage. Now we call it a meltdown. Mm -hmm. He had no idea why. And this continued every
0: day unabated for Nine months. You're saying that your son didn't know why he was doing it.
1: He had no idea. Yeah. And within a month after this had started, he started engaging in nonstop ritual. So at first, he would tap and touch repeatedly. He couldn't walk through doors unless he counted to 14, couldn't put on his socks because they didn't feel right. Might take him 20, 30 minutes. And then they quickly escalated. These rituals would change week to week, too he started rubbing his head against shrubs, car tires, and poles. He got down on the filthy floor and licked it repeatedly. He even put a knife in his mouth to feel it. And you can imagine how you would feel as a parent Mm
0: -hmm.
1: looking at this. And he said to me in tears one day, mom, I think I'm going crazy and I just want to die. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, his younger sister Ainsley who was just the opposite in behavior. Andrew was rule-bound, and they were both very kind, gentle, vulnerable kids. But Andrew followed every rule and structure. Ainsley was out of control. She was sent to the principals every day for being disruptive, jumping on desks, shouting out, swearing. It went on and on. And she left me a note that said, Mom, I know I'm a bad child, but I can't help my out-of-control behavior. And that's when I said enough. It's clear, this is not my problem. This is not David's problem. There is something here, and finally, our doctor had to agree. So we got referred, and the kids were diagnosed. Andrew with autism. At the time, he was diagnosed with what was called pervasive developmental delay. That has since been folded into autism under what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5. That psychiatrist uses the the Bible, shall we say, for diagnoses. So autism, Tourette syndrome, OCD, ADHD, and learning disabilities. And Ainsley on the other side, also with Tourette syndrome, ADHD, and learning disabilities, along with severe mood and anxiety disorders. And we were oddly fortunate because although it was years in the making, their behavior was so clear and so severe that they were able to be correctly and fully diagnosed Whereas other families, as you probably know, Hera, can wait years and years, or there can be misdiagnoses. There can be all kinds of problems. So we were able to get that. And that's what started us on the path to helping the kids
0: optimize their lives and ours. What kind of doctor did you need to get to, to get the correct diagnosis? And also did medication help them? Oh, without
1: a doubt. Psychiatrist first. Okay, They're the ones as MDs who can, well, they not only diagnose, but they can uh, prescribe medications. But to me, medications and therapy go hand in hand. Now, there are mild cases, certainly, where either therapy alone, preferably therapy first, or medications alone will work. But for both Andrew and Ainsley, and I think for many, many children, they need both. Mm-hmm. And they help each other and inform each other. Of course, you have to watch The very delicate interactions on the medication side. And there's some severe side effects. Lots of trial and error. Yeah. But after that nine months, when the doctor prescribed a powerful new antipsychotic, within two days, Andrew's meltdowns stopped totally. It was such a relief. I said, I always kick myself that I didn't find this doctor earlier. Mm -hmm. And in Ainsley's case, it's still a work in progress for both of them. But you know, she's had stomach upsets, nausea, a shakiness, but the meds are life-saving for both kids. At the same time, what we found was, especially with Andrew's OCD as an example, it took about three months for the SSRI antidepressant that he was taking to kick in, we titrated, we adjusted. And once it started, his urge to perform those compulsive rituals to temporarily stop terrible. Disturbing thoughts that were irrational, and he knew they were irrational. They were still there and they were still strong, but they weren't consuming every single minute of the day. And therefore, his brain chemistry was changed just enough to allow therapy to start. Now, with therapy, there are many general psychologists, social workers, you know, whoever you use, that can work well. But you often need professionals who are qualified in your children's conditions. So, it might be ABA for autism, cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety and ADHD. It might be CBIT, comprehensive behavioral intervention for TICs, for Tourette, and exposure and response prevention for OCD, for example. All those have really helped both my kids. And to this day, their psychiatrists and their psychologists regularly communicate with one another. And that's key. You know, my book, Hold On Tight. A Parent's Journey Raising Children with Mental Illness that came out in March and that I'm thrilled has won the Mom's Choice Award. Oh, wonderful. Has 13, I think, key insights to help caregivers ease the journey. And the most overarching insight, Hara, is to insist on an integrated partnership approach with every professional involved in your child's care.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's what the psychiatrists and psychologists talking to each other is so important so that they can both adjust their approaches. Same thing with educators. We wouldn't have kept the kids in schools that didn't partner with us and treat us with that dignity and respect. And then as they grew, employers as well who are inclusive and accommodate. How old are your kids now? Ainsley just turned 34 and Andrew 36.
0: I understand that the children suffered, but as a parent, what was it like for you?
1: A harrowing journey that continues again today.
0: When they were in all that distress,
1: I promised them, I will not stop until I find you the right help. And that's exactly what I've done and continue to do. Yeah. It requires a lot of research and you've got to embrace research. It's what makes you not only better informed and educated, but a more effective advocate. We said, we've got to find help for ourselves too, support for ourselves, because I felt like I was in the twilight zone. You're isolated. You're frightened. You're feeling frozen at times. You don't know how to go about this. It's trial and error. And so we looked for a local support group for parents. It was wonderful to find other parents who understood impulsivity, distractibility, hyperactivity, but no other parent had a child like Andrew, who was having those two-hour meltdowns every day, who couldn't maintain eye contact. No other child like Ainsley had such paralyzing anxiety. And so we knew there were more. So back to research, we went. I was reading about autism. David was reading about Tourette, And they both talked about emotional overload causing meltdowns. And it was like a light went off. I can't tell you how quickly we ran to our nearest autism and Tourette support groups and really found our homes. It's been so reaffirming. And again, to this day, other parents of neurodivergent children are the ones that implicitly understand what you're going through.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Unfortunately, a lack of awareness, a lack of education can lead to stigma, fear, and misunderstandings. We've had certain friends and family members who have been wonderful, but many who distanced themselves, who disappeared from our lives, who gave us unasked for advice. Even my mother told me, you just need to be stricter, Jan, and Ainsley's unruly behavior will disappear. I had another relative who said to me, well, you don't want Andrew on that medication, which was a life-saving antipsychotic medication because he was gaining weight every week. The worst are the family members that have erroneous impressions that the child is morally contagious. You hear that when you go on the net or social media, you'll still see lazy parenting causing ADHD. What you need to do is to focus on those who truly support you. Many parents ask me, Gee, should I disclose my kids' ADHD or anxiety to their teacher, to the school? What should I do? I don't want them labeled. I don't want them treated as inferior or being seen as different. And I understand those concerns. The guideline that I generally recommend, and it's true later when your child is employed too, is if you think your child needs help with day-to-day functioning at school, disclose. There are so many benefits to transparency. And that's, by the way, remember that overarching insight of building a partnership? That's how you do it. I'm consistently surprised when parents tell me, Boy, I did it. And their peers at school are now rallying behind them. Mm. Of course, you're always going to have some bullies and you're always going to have some bad teachers, but most are fantastic and you just want to go forward to it. The other thing is you must take care of yourself. This is so difficult when you're in crisis with a child. I remember during Andrew's frightening rages, David would carry him down to the playroom where we had gotten rid of all our furniture, put in these huge throw pillows so he couldn't hurt himself. And I would stand at the top of the stairs and shovel in pints of ice cream. Not very healthy, but it got me through the crisis. And I'm talking way beyond the all-important eating healthfully, exercising, trying to sleep well. You know, we should all try to do that. But what you want to do is reach out for the support that works for you. And finally, be kind to yourself. It took me a long time to forgive myself after I found Ainsley hiding in the closet during Andrew's meltdown. I should have protected her better, but you've got to get over that. I pat myself on the back and I compliment myself for my strength and perseverance. It's important to do
0: that and to remember that you are your child's hero and champion and you are more than enough. I posted this today, and this makes me think of what you said. This is from Humans of New York. When someone called me a hero, I wanted to prove them right. When somebody called me a devil, I wanted to prove them wrong. It took a lot of self-examination to realize that I was neither. There is a fullness to a person that is gigantic and nuanced and indefinable. I couldn't be contained by a single word. I'm told by people, and I'm sure you are too, all the time,
1: oh, you're so heroic and you're strong. This was particularly true when about 10 years ago, I underwent a year of breast cancer treatment. I had four operations, chemotherapy and radiation. Mm. And I always say, you know what? It's not true. Of course, we're all wired differently. And I do believe we all do our best, but it's Mm -hmm. my children who are heroic. Mm. In spite of everything that is thrown at them, They found their niches in life. They embrace life with optimism, determination, and grit. And that's what heroism is to me.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thank you for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.